meditation um, learn to take your learning lightly learn a little bit very thoroughly learn to take small steps think small teaching there is actually much more available than we really need to know it's like there's a whole range and there's a kind of so you can some things resonate for you or, but actually there's, a, there's, a, there's there's much more available than you really need in the in the teachings it's not it's not a for the experience of the Buddha's teaching is, is not what well, we have to accumulate and become an expert, but it's, it's not an accumulative kind of teaching. It's not a learning teaching. It's not a, not a teaching you have to absorb more and more of the ideas. But the ideas are there just because some have a better effect for some people. They help to define a particular space. The teaching is mainly reflective teaching for meditators. And reflective teaching means that it, it's asking you to, to consider, to say contemplate certain things. We use this word contemplate and reflect quite a lot. It, it's, it's something that becomes more possible as your, your sense of sustained attention matures and develops, the ability to sustain attention. And you learn how to be more flexible in your mode of attention. So you can actually hold and sustain awareness of, of, of an emotion that's present. Or a thought form, physical feeling, and you can you can actually sustain it, you can contemplate it rather than you know just grab it. That the different this is called sama samadhi or or complete complete uh, concentration, concentration that's completed. Samma means to, to complete, or that, that state of completion. And a uh, word like concentration itself is, is rather misleading, because we often we can practice incomplete concentration, 
which is a kind of snatching effect where you just hold something hold, hold, hold but uh, complete concentration is is when there's a presence of intelligence there what are called satipanya mindful mindful understanding that is you're, you're, as you're holding something as your mind is focused on something you're able to 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 look at its changing processes to get a reading of it and you use this this uh, power of the mind to understand very simple things, attachment, holding on, uh, defensiveness. What is liberation and what is not liberation? What is clinging and what is letting go? meditation retreat is um, an occasion a living occasion several days of our life of our thinking breathing, feeling, hoping aspiring, relaxing enjoying, despairing life (laughs) can you get readings off of these, these things that are happening to you or are you looking for the right one are you trying to grasp the right one or are you, are you actually beginning to learn to sustain complete focusing upon all of these ones and none of them being the right one and that's the right kind of concentration and you've got it <laughs> we tend to take uh, mindfulness for example as some kind of you know, specialized experience. So, you know, now I'm being really mindful. And we associate with that maybe with a particular um, quality of, of absorption or calm or refinement. And people get in a real jam over this because they can only do certain things according to the, the idea of mindfulness. Mindfulness generally, you know, people take it as a feeling of this a sense of, of being able to everything operates inside a little box when you're being mindful so you can kind of stand outside the experience and go that's feeling there's a thought, now I'm thinking now I'm moving now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that and now I'm being mindful I have this kind of experience where you're actually you can be mindful as long as you can kind of put a box around something if things happen too fast, we haven't got a chance to kind of put this thing around it. Wait, 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 wait a minute. You know, so that um, sometimes in mindfulness practice, people look uh, get really a little bit off. And artificial. 
and then wonder why I can't integrate that into, into daily life. Because life actually doesn't come in, in nice little discrete packages. You know, letting you know when it's going to happen, when it happens, and it kind of appears at this time a certain way. Mindfulness, we say, is certain, certain functions, certain features. It's that, ability, that which establishes attention. So mindfulness is actually a lifting of attention onto something. Mindfulness is that which ca- is the process, awareness of what's called the, the, the flow of something, the arising and ceasing of something, the changeability of it. You're aware of something as it comes, you're aware of as it goes. You're aware of that kind of movement. And uh, there are several bases for it. You can look at it in certain ways. The body or or feeling, physical feeling that that arises, pleasant, painful, neutral. Um, Mind and uh, the emotion, the mood, the atmosphere of the mind and the mental processes and uh, this particularly these last two are really uh, an invitation for us to to experience what what is this what is mind is it something that we can uh, can we ever step outside it and say, oh, this is mine, this is a thought, this is a feeling. Get. Somebody was saying this in one of the discussion groups today. You know, the whole problem of it is mind. Because how, do, how, can, how can I know my mind? Because that's my mind, knowing it. And meditators often get into this, this uh, dilemma of, of the, this being, being a watcher being a knower and this knowingness this knowing attitude becomes infused with the various personality characteristics that we're trying to be liberated from it gets heavy, it gets possessive it, um, it's a control mechanism it judges, it criticizes it always expects perfection it wants something special to happen it's looking for the right thing and it complains if he doesn't come up with it. The watcher sounds, becomes eventually someone like a kind of like a rather bad neighbor. <laughs> and you think, well, actually, I was doing better before I had a watcher. You know, at least I was kind of happily pig ignorant but happy with it. <laughs> And now you've got this watcher on your back who's um, <laughs> giving you a hard time. But people, uh, we are often uh, amazing in our resolution because we, uh, this feeling of it's probably good for me, you know. interesting the the Buddha saying that uh, you know there are two kinds of 
attachments to self-view, one is seeing yourself uh, as, as the thoughts and feelings and the ideas and impressions that arise, and one is seeing yourself as separate from those. And this watcher is the kind of the separate, one who's separated from th- the apparent flow of thoughts and feelings. And um, it's another illusion, it's another, it's another self-position. And we can, we can feel and we can contemplate, and we can recognize the, the stress involved in that. And the um, emotional dysfunction that happens within that. So is there a way out? Is there a way past that? Past that strange sort of schizophrenia of meditation when you've got this kind of watcher looking and trying to find something and generally um, it becomes increasingly imperious and irritated by the stuff that it's watching. He only, want the, he only wants to watch the special, nice, refined, calm spaces and the rest of it. You know, watch this stuff. <laughs> there has to be a realization of, um, or just a, a recollection of, of what, uh, of this whole experience of self, the self position. Which, are, which I think most everybody finds as they painful, inadequate at the best, uh, kind of something, or maybe something we kind of accept in a in a good-humoured, rather sort of shoulder-shrugging way. Well, and sometimes we, as you meditate, people I notice people get increasingly bitter about themselves, about their their personality is increasingly bitter and, 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 uh, and annoyed with themselves and, and blaming and punishing themselves. It's, uh, it's quite uh, hurtful to see and hear this and I uh, can fully empathize with it. Why is it like that when you put so much effort into practice Sometimes, you know, doing retreats and uh, putting a lot of effort with dealing with trying to work with physical pain and dullness. And, and then at the end of it, what you come out with is, is a feeling of, of bitterness towards yourself, of your lousy mind and your crummy feelings and your restlessness and all that. The self, the self view is a painful one. And what is that? It's looking, it's looking for the right one, isn't it? And because after years and years of looking for the right one, you still haven't found it, one, you know, then this, this bitterness and resentment starts to well up. And a feeling of, there was a right one, somebody's got the right one, and you haven't. And even though you tried really hard to get it, it just shows what a failure you are, because even after eight years, ten years of trying, you still haven't got it. You know, you, you're really a pain. And then who's complaining? 
Who is it who feels cheated and thwarted? Who is it that we've let down? Who's complaining? That self, that kind of, which isn't the same as the apparent flow of thoughts and feelings, is a kind of super self. And standing outside of it and pointing a finger at it, annoying it. That's, that's actually the villain. There are two, two main, uh, the self-experience is formed in two, two particular ways. That's called the, the um, one is through volition. That is, we recognize kind of impulse, desire, fear, movement, running after something, shrinking back from something, chasing this, chasing, there I go again. You know, me, the kind of magnetic pulls, uh, me and mine. That's what I like, that's what I want, that's what I'm going for, I don't like this. Whenever these volitional qualities come up, and we don't understand them, the impulses, the attractions, the desires, the fears, these kind of things that make us, that, that cause all this movement in the mind, then it gives rise to the sense of self. It's me doing it. Here I go again. If it's not looked at clearly, there always to be, seems to be somebody doing it. And that in, impression is so strong you ever really examine the movement of a, of a desire or, or a thought or a feeling? Is there, anybody, is there anybody there? And should it be another way? When we try to actually understand what, what is it, what is, what is this? What is this consciousness? What is this human consciousness? You know, looking at it, the, there are there are sense desires. What are sense organs for? They're not for that. You know, they're there to determine and say that's a good, that's that will do you good. Go for that. They they make that they they have that kind of process built into them. You know, you have a um, a body. You put it in something hot. It doesn't say. I'm being equanimous about this. <laughs> it's just an impermanent sensation after it says, this is hot, it's unpleasant, it's dangerous, get out, get me out of here. You know, it does that, doesn't it? Um, it's got this kind of process to it. And over time, then, then the, all, all of the senses will, will, are, are geared to, to create that kind of pattern and process. And upon that, then, then through a whole lifetime, you, you then build up all kinds of further um, preferences and tastes. And actually, what, all, what, the, what these are, what the irrelevant ones that annoy us, the kind of fantasies that we know we shouldn't have, and strange phobias and, and fears and and uh, so forth that we know we shouldn't have and we desperately feel so annoyed with ourselves for having are, are all based upon the second kind of, of creation 
which is not movement of volition, it's just pure determination. That is, the way things are seen. The way that things are seen and experienced and the way that things are seen and experienced are, becomes, is in terms of, or gives rise to the experience of self. That is, um, what's called, you get a kind of perceptual bank where some things are, are registered and logged as this is nice, this is good, this is enjoyable. Some things you get praised for, some things you get blamed for, some things you get attention for, some things you get ignored about. And you gradually, your mind kind of builds up these, this, this is this is what to, to go for. Build up a set of values, determinants. In different, you get cultural ones in different, different cultures and different societies would establish things that are admired and things that are despised. So that we, you know, we naturally People like the ones to be the ones they admire. When you go to a, diff- a completely different culture, where things that you would think are, are rather embarrassing or shameful, and then they're, they're but they're okay in that culture. They're fine in that particular culture. And you can see how how we become established according to certain values, social values, cultural values. And then all kinds of intrapersonal values, the things you got patted on the head for. And the big, big ones, of course, are things like success, achievement, uh, beauty, um, strength, intelligence. You know. So naturally, everybody wants to be beautiful, strong, intelligent, successful. Everybody wants to be hideous, dim-witted creep. <laughs> so there's always that kind of fear, isn't there? Because you can't, you can't actually quantify what these things are. Who's the most beautiful, the most intelligent, the, the strongest forever, permanently? And if you're not, then there's that dread What's, you know, the terror that it's horrible to be beautiful, I would imagine. I've never been beautiful. But, uh, you know, to have that to, and to be praised for that and to be valued for that and then to recognize that, you know, maybe somebody who come along was more beautiful when you've invested so much in that or that maybe it's going to fade. I mean, notice the, the amount of, of money people will spend on just kind of you know, tightening their face up another few notches. <laughs> face lifts and things. Slapping tons of cream and, and pulling the hairs out. And, you know, and then the, it's, it's horrible what, um, what the culture does to, to women in particular. You know, suddenly the look of the year is fat, you know, and you're thin because last year's look was thin and you're suddenly quick, beef up. But then by the end of the year, we've gone back to, you know, thin hips again and slick it down and, you know, we want tall people this year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the way that 
say women in particular really have a, a uh, are caused a tremendous amount of suffering through these these values, these determinations of what what is what, uh, what is beautiful or what is good. And you can never actually you can never get to the end of it because your mind can always can conceive of something better. A few years ago, I was met a, a, a weightlifter. Man, who was a weightlifter, and uh, you know, he's built like a barn door. This guy, um, and he was learning to meditate because he had so much fear, <coughs> so much fear and trembling that he, he was trying to meditate just to try and get some calm. And you think, you know, it's if, because it got so that he train himself so regularly with this kind of obsession to become really strong and fit and totally in tune. He'd spend maybe, you know, four or five hours a day getting fit and working out. And it got so, that because he had such an in- incredible obsession with this, and the reason why it was like that was because of fear. Because he was frightened. Kind of frightened, timid guy. So he, be- he developed this powerful body to allay the fear. So no, nobody's going to mess with me. But it actually didn't work because he felt that if he didn't do his four or five hours a day, he wasn't really in tip-top condition, and he was frightened to go out. Couldn't walk down the street unless he'd done his four or five hours a day of a workout, because somebody might take him apart. You know, and he's a huge guy, and he could rip telephone books apart in his hands. You could bear with me. I mean, you know, old lady could do take me apart. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have any fear of walking down the street because it never really occurred to me to um, to bother about it. You know, it's not not been a problem for me. But you can see how that that say a determinant of you know what you need to be becomes a source of karma, a source of what you think you are, which is never never the completion, the complete achievement of what you want to be. Because your mind can always determine it a little bit further. <coughs> if, you're, if you're very beautiful, if lots of people say you're beautiful, then you, know, you could be a bit more beautiful. If you're strong, you want to be a bit, bit stronger. If you're intelligent, you want to be just a bit smarter. You're quick, you want to be a bit quicker. You know, this in, in meditation, I found this myself, with, you know, developing concentration from that attitude of meditation is concentrate, be really concentrated and calm. I spent hours, you know, 10, 12 hours a day for years, just get as calm and quiet as possible. And, um, just being able to get into some very, very quiet, calm spaces. But underneath, even though at that level of concentration there's no thinking, there's still this sort of mood, like a pushy mood of a bit more, a bit more, hold it a bit more, you know. So it was never, never very peaceful, never a release experience, never an experience of ease or joyfulness, but always a kind of grimly won war Against against any corner movement in the mind, 
And then how, how long can you keep it like that? There's that feeling of everything, the fly, the fly buzzes on the window screen. And you go, fly! <laughs> you know, you've destroyed my concentration. I just can't, I came here to get some peace and quiet. This fly, it's on the, the screen. And then, you know, then, then you, you, this powerful emotion arises. And then, you, you know, you feel bad about that. And, you know, I shouldn't feel this way. Uh, you know. And so the whole thing then collapses again. Because one has made a determinant of, you know, this is, this is what one wants to be. One wants to be a success. And then we have different ways of defining what that is in terms of what we're doing. You want to be a rich person. Do you never know a rich person who says, I've got all the money I need, I'm completely content now. You know, that's it. They're always kind of worrying and want a bit more and guard it and protect it. So this, there's this, this basic determining process of saying, you know, this is this is what success is, this is what the pleasant, this is what the praiseworthy, this is what the high, this is what the, you know, there's always some polarization in terms of the positive value that we posit, that we determine, that we want to be. And if you look at that, I mean, you're, you're, you know, as, a, as a meditator, you might have those as pretty like, I just want to be a little more peaceful, might be all you, all you want. But that's too much. You're still making that, that expression. And like anything else, any other expression you make in terms of self, you'll still find that as you get closer to it, it moves further away. As you get closer to it, it moves further away. Because the grasping of your mind is continually pushing it out of reach. You always create, as long as the mind is set in that way, it will always create a further that you haven't got yet, and an increasing sense of intolerance, exasperation, fear, worry, self-criticism about where you are now. And that can happen in, you know, you can witness that happening in any walk of life. And it, it does it. It just develops it over years. Same, same rubbishy pattern happening. As soon as, you, as soon as you make a statement about what I am, that is the seed of karma. That's the seed of that feverish activity that's never quenched and never satisfied. I remember a few... Um, it was a little while ago, I was t- talking to... And, um, and only Gary Carr, that's a kind of um, like an apprentice nun. And she was saying how, you know, she didn't concentrate well enough and she didn't practice hard enough and her mind wasn't quiet enough and she should be this by now and that by now. You know, her mind wasn't, you know, wasn't loving enough and it wasn't peaceful enough and she had thoughts of violence and hatred and it wasn't good enough 
And I, you know, was listening to that, and of course he listened to somebody else's stuff. He said, but you're all right, you know. You're really doing well. You're doing fine. You, you know, you get here every morning. You put effort into your practice. You help out. You know, everybody likes you, you're fine. Why don't you like yourself? And then later in the day, I'm kind of walking up and down on my meditation path, <coughs> thinking, walking up and down. I should be an arahant by now, shouldn't I? <laughs> no. Here I'm teaching meditation. I've been doing this how many years? When are you ever going to get it together? You know. You definitely had a. You definitely had a. Um, you know, some unwholesome thoughts. You haven't. You know. You're not an arahant yet. You should have got it together by now, haven't you? You're not good enough, really. You're really not good enough at all. In fact, I think you're a bit of a hypocrite, really. A bit of a liar and a hypocrite. I think, <laughs> wait a minute, you know. <laughs> I mean, did you tell every? Did you say to people, I never have a wholesome thought? No, never. I never said that. What you know? What? What is it that carries that that paradigm along? Wherever you go, so you wake up in the morning and it's there, ready to get you. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing at night, just as you're falling asleep, it's still whispering in your ear. (laughs) Going to sleep, eh? Copping out, eh? (laughs) (laughs) You always were a loser. And that, that kind of karma, which isn't, you know, sometimes we don't even see it as that because we see karma as something very much to do with like, outward activity. You know, actual, actual acts that we do. But in meditation, you begin, you're looking right at the very beginning of it. <coughs> what was this kind of festering discontent is a, is the thing that gets you going all the time. You never get any rest. You never get a break. You never get a moment's peace of mind because this this hound's always on your tail. It keeps you going. You create you know you're creating karma. And what is karma? It's a continual projection of oneself. And it's complete rubbish because how can you see yourself? You can see something, you know, you can see thoughts and feelings, you can see impressions and movements, you can see hindrances and defilements and virtues and vices. But how can you see yourself? Because there'd be two of them, wouldn't there? You know, there'd be a, there'd be a me. Who's, who's, you know, a kind of external self looking at an internal self. So the thing really doesn't make sense when you say, I hate myself, I'm not good enough. This is, this is a lie. Now, you can't say that I am good enough either. But all you can say is, there, you know, there are thoughts, there are feelings that come and go. And there are values and determinants that that don't that don't jive with those. 
That's why in, in the practice you keep it very clear as to what, what, is, what the standards are. Like, you know, the level of, of acting, the level of precepts. And even with things like, you know, the, the hindrances and doubt and, and craving and jealousy and so forth, things that we get extremely embarrassed about, in, in Buddha Dharma, the, the, you're not really meditating until you, can, until you can find a position to witness these, to be mindful of them, rather than just be acting, creating emotional distaste and fear and dread and aversion to them. Because those are hindrances, aren't they? You're not actually practicing if you're heaping one set of hindrances upon another. If you're heaping hatred on top of greed, this is not, you know, there isn't any practice there. So the, the, the standard is can you see greed say, anger, say, as, a, as an impermanent condition that is not self. This is the jargon. A little bit strange. But that's the jargon. And you have to kind of chew those words over and find your own meaning, your own appraisal of it. It means for a start that it doesn't, that, um, you know, when you're caught up in something that there's that uh, something that recognizes. Wait, let's stop. Let's look at this. Yeah, and, and to 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 stay steady so that when the the thing ends, that thought, that feeling ends, it sort of dies down, as it will. You actually recognize that and fully conscious of that. You know, and then to hold attention beyond that. So you, then notice what comes up. And if you're very attentive, then nothing comes up. There's just the, there's the silence and the stillness. Or you may get a little bit of resonance, a kind of doubt, worry coming up. And then you, keep, you can keep kind of witnessing these things. But the sense of self comes up after the experience rather than before it. So that anger, for example, creates the sense of somebody who is angry. Jealousy creates the sense of somebody who is jealous. When there's attachment to it, when there's this uncertainty, when there's not clear attention, when there's what's called avijja, then from avijja is the arising of what's called these karma formations. In Buddhist language, sankara. That is, things, when things are not seen correct, straight, clearly, steadily, things give rise to the experience of self, of an I am who's doing it and knowing it. And this doesn't mean that, that there isn't anybody here, in an ultimate sense. What it means is that that notional experience of identity that dogs us, that we're always trying to uh, tidy up or ignore or do some plastic surgery on is a fantasy it's not, it's not, there's nothing there to be, to be worked on and all of that working on it is actually 
productive of the experience that we're trying to get rid of. In the experience of, of meditation, an experience, long go, ongoing experience of practice, I think it's very common for people to become increasingly self-conscious, increasingly um, it can make you very important to yourself. It takes yourself very seriously. You know, this and that. And this. Because of the, the attention and the whole mood and reason why we meditate the thing that we determine in meditation, we create some, uh, some sort of idea of perfection, freedom, liberation, enlightenment, truth, wisdom, and so on. And that, be- that determinant becomes, again, the impossible goal that you never get to. Just like being the strongest, prettiest, wisest, most intelligent. It's, it becomes another one. We determine things in terms of self. I want to be this, I want to be that. Am I this enough yet? And as soon as we do that, then it give, not only is it suffering, but it, it gives rise to the, the sense of self, and you never get out of it. You never appease it. Sometimes it, it's, it's a matter you have to forget a lot, really, drop a lot of all of that uh, self-importance and self-consciousness and these ideas and these determining values of you know what an arahant is and which people love to talk about and speculate about and what level you're at and are you a stream entry yet is it possible to be a stream entrant now? Are you an arahant? Is it possible? That, can arahants exist anymore? Can you be an arahant as a lay person? Or is it only, is it only monks and nuns who can be arahants? Or maybe it's only monks and not even nuns can be arahants. <laughs> Another issue. Or is it stream entry? You can't be a stream entry and you have to wait until the next Buddha comes around and then if you're really lucky you could be a stream entry. And you know, when you stand outside this for a moment you think, what is all this gibberish? <laughs> <laughs> you know, who wants to be one of these stream entries anyway? You know, they seem to be totally obsessed with themselves. Then Buddha Dharma, then the exhortation, the encouragement is to realize, just to realize, you know, the paradigm that that set up, that enables these terrible forces of um, stress and strain and continual frustration and self-denial and criticism 
and um, you know, self-criticism and, and all this to be set up. And the paradigm is this, uh, this the, the, the determinant, what, what I am, what I will be. Buddha Dharma is always just how it, the way it is now. It's the way it is now. And it's not, I was this, therefore I will be that. I'm not this yet, but I could be that. He's like that, but I'm not. I'm sure she's this way, but she's not. We're not, you know, all that language. You can feel, if you, if you contemplate it, you can actually feel in your heart what it does. The nervousness and the trembling and the competition and the anxiety and the don't let anybody know where I am, don't find out where I'm at. Because <laughs> I know they think I'm, I'm at this state, but I'm not. And uh, in, in the practice, we, we, we're not sort of just glossing over the, the weaknesses or the foibles or the way, way it is, but we see in Dharma, you see the exhortation is to say there is suffering. Suffering arises dependent on this. This is skillful. This is unskillful. Why is, why is, say, do you ever, do you ever really ask yourself, you know, why is hatred unskillful? What's wrong with it anyway? Do it quite a lot. What's wrong with it? What's unskillful about it? You know, to actually witness that fully, not, 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 so that in this practice you actually, it's, it's a going forth practice, which means you step out of the value systems and you actually try to, to get a, a, a completely fresh and direct experience of what is, what skillfulness or unskillfulness is. is. Why is that way? And I, I personally, I, when I witness, you know, and it's difficult to cast off these these uh, value judgments to actually understand why why something like hatred or greed is is what's wrong with it. For me, you know. Even if there was nobody else to, to blame or but nobody found out, you know. There's no, no, nobody up there looking. What would be wrong with it? And I can recognize as, as I contemplate that, that, you know, that, that thing, that experience leads to a sense of bondage, of being trapped and stuck. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to something like lightness or joy. Well, witnessed all of these, and none of them, these greed and hatred, doesn't actually lead to joy or freedom. Having witnessed it happen many, many, many times, I've never noticed one single moment of greed or hatred lead me to joy and freedom. <laughs> I think, therefore, you re- one recognizes this is what unskillfulness is. And in your heart you begin to 
without thinking about it or determining it, you just you lose your taste for that. It doesn't become worth it. But as long as you say, oh, naughty mustn't, don't do that, then something you says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> it doesn't work, the, the thou shalt not. It doesn't work. You know, maybe, maybe you can kind of hold it back. But the more you hold it back, the more it becomes something that's tempting, interesting, possible. Something you can actually, because the holding back is itself unskillful. It's a kind of state of being trapped and oppressed, isn't it? So you can't establish a true morality just upon if you do that, you'll be blamed and punished. You have to, you have to stop. You only stop. Morality comes because when you feel that uh, that's unskillful. And it's kind of learnt intuitively. So a meditator has to really cultivate to be able to fully fathom and understand these things. Not just to come up to the point of my mind's a mess, I don't like this, I don't like that, I'm always getting, I'm always irritable, and irritable is bad, I shouldn't be irritable. Because, you know, what, what happens when you're in that, with that kind of model, you just get more and more frustrated and irritable. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work. So, I mean, on an idealistic level, sure, you shouldn't be irritable. But what are you going to do about it? And meditation mindfulness is the, the very direct, it's a kind of gone forth means, in that it's, it's daring. It's, um, it's a kind of stepping out in order to, to review and experience these things, rather than going into another little, another little model, another little set of views that uh, then you kind of low, dump on top of the, the experience you're having. In one of the, the suttas, the, the, uh, one of the Buddha's uh, disciples goes and meets a, a wandering ascetic and says to, and says, asks him, you know, what, do you, what do you consider an enlightened person to be, a really enlightened, noble one? What, what are they like? And the wandering ascetic says, oh, an enlightened person is someone who has no, never has a thought of evil neither acts, nor says, nor thinks anything evil. Those things do not occur for him. And uh, so the disciple seems pretty good. He goes to the Buddha and tells him this, and he says, what do you think of that? And the Buddha says, no, rubbish. As if it was like that, then, then a newborn baby would be an enlightened person, wouldn't they? A newborn baby doesn't think, act, say anything wrong. He says, no, an enlightened person is someone who fully understands unwholesomeness, fully understands it, and fully understands wholesomeness, and understands what it arises dependent upon, what, where it comes from, what it's about, 
when you look very directly, you can realise that a lot of it is just about just arises through thinking and through the kind of what thinking does to you, how thinking itself sets up things in kind of black and white model, the rational mind always sets things up in terms of perfection and abstract models. It's definitely this or it's definitely that. That's what the thinking mind does. It, it freezes and forms images. It says, you are this, you are that. It always kind of cuts out and, and it's, uh, sees things in very hard-edged terms. And just with a... So a, a lot of our stuff just, just rises dependent upon the activity of thinking and then the realities that thinking has created for us. The conceptual reality, the conceptual apparent realities, in which, for example, you see what is obviously a process of continual change and flux as an isolated entity called a self. And the Buddha said, you know, it would make more sense to call the body a self. Even though, it's, even though it's totally connected, it has to breathe in air, it needs food, it only arises dependent upon a, a mother and a father, um, it manifestly doesn't belong to anybody, it can't be independent for a single moment. He said, that, that, it would be, be easier to call that yourself than the mind which is programmed tape loops, historical traumas, cultural determinants, and, and uh, you know, which isn't the same thing from one moment to the next. And yet, has this power through its, its, as a sense organ to, to, to continually establish a pattern, an image, and say, I am that does that, doesn't it? Which such, such power that even though when we can't, don't know what we are, we can't find ourselves, and we don't know what I am, we still imagine that, uh, I, that there is an I am that could be found, that you haven't got yet. There's some kind of super state, there's some sort of super self that you could find that you haven't got yet. There's an enlightened self that you could be that you haven't made it yet. And there's a perfect person that you could become, but you're not yet. That's what it does. You can witness it. It does it all the time. If you let it, if you actually still believe in it. So in meditation, what? You do, you do several things. You try to, to just cool down the thinking processes calm them, tranquilize them, be more spacious about them. You can do that to a certain degree. Meditation teaches you to do that for a certain degree, but it doesn't really resolve the basic belief in it. Though. Even if you get to, to thought, you know, thoughtless states, as soon as the thought arises, oh, me, here I am again thinking. <laughs> so, with insight, insight is to actually examine thinking and say, this is, this is, 
you know, to realise it's thinking and the kind of weird realities that thinking creates. When we have these, like these, um, just people talk, saying a little few things occasionally in our meetings. And particularly, you know, notice whenever somebody talks about themselves. <laughs> Thinking at its most um, brutal, most uh, hard edged most crippling, something that's, uh, you know, the the quality of of these people, the kind of vibrancy and the changeability and the adaptability and the willingness and the flow and the humour and the love and what thinking does to it. Not good enough. It's stamped, isn't it? Because thinking actually freezes something into into a you know a particle, which manifestly is not that way. You can't trust it. You don't have to stop it to to under. You, you better it's better not to stop it. To really review and listen and listen objectively, and listen like it's somebody else, and observe the patterns, and then notice, you know, particularly throw a word like me into it, what it does, who am I, what am I? Do, do that a lot, like when you practice, just throw things in, like question, are you doing any, are you, how well are you doing? This is a good one. Well, I'm not doing well, I really haven't <laughs> You know, whenever you really put a self into it, it it goes, uh, it's very, very fraught and uh, tight. So we can realize that the thinking process itself gives rise to that experience. When we know that, then in a way you don't even have to stop it because you can see that the whole suffering self is is not a reality. It's a thought for it's a it's a creation of thought. It's a karmic creation. And if we can the dispassion in our mind, the willingness to actually just listen through the thinking, listen through the feeling. Is what beginning to you begin to realise what is that? What is the listening of the mind? What's the attention of it? What's the what's the, the that 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 kind of stillness and space? What's that? Rather than trying to um, make something that is you know, repeatedly described as this is unsatisfactory, impermanent, and not self, into something that's satisfactory, permanently, and permanent self. If it was like that, there wouldn't be any dharma. If you could have a satisfactory self, then the Buddha would be a liar. (laughs) 
But to respond to the unsatisfactory self, to, res- to respond to it, is the is the the practice to know how to uh, to take it lightly, the way you would a child. Carefully, responsibly. This is all we have to do. Spiritually, we don't have to become something. We have to deal and get real about what what we already have become. You've become enough already. You don't have to become anything more. That, that's, that's already happened. Birth has already happened. Now the process is one of realization, not becoming. Said one.